This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Mac Weldon. If you're in the market for some new undergarments, I'm talking undershirts, underwear, socks, you check out Mac Weldon because it's definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. Not only do their clothes look and feel great, their products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. For example, their silver underwear and shirts are of a naturally antimicrobial fabric, which means it eliminates odor. Plus, with Mac Weldon, everything's shipped right to your door, and if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they'll refund you no questions asked. If you want to check this out at a discount got an offer for you go to macweldon.com and use code manliness at checkout to get 20 percent off again macweldon.com promo code manliness for 20 percent off your first purchase Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, if you're like me, you have a love-hate relationship with your digital devices. On the one hand, they give us access to unlimited amounts of information, connect us with friends and family, and allow us to work from pretty much anywhere. On the other hand, they can captivate our attention so much that we feel distracted and angsty. And try as we might, we often find it hard to ignore the itch to stop scrolling through Instagram and really listen to what our loved one is saying. Why do these devices feel so dang, sometimes even addictive? Right? My guest today is a neuroscientist who studied that question in depth. His name is Adam Gazali, and he's the founder of the Gazali Labs at University of California at San Francisco. There, he and his team has researched what goes on in our brains when we use our digital devices, why they distract us, and what we can do about it. Today on the show, Adam and I discuss the science of distraction and focus. He walks us through first the cognitive functions that we use to focus our attention and to avoid distraction. He then explains why these evolved cognitive functions are mismatched for today's constantly buzzing digital devices. And he does this by using a theory of optimal food foraging borrowed from biology. It's really interesting. We then discuss action steps grounded in science on how you can beat distraction and stay more focused throughout the day. We end our conversation talking about Adam's work creating prescription video games. Yes, prescription that can be used to help elderly patients and individuals with ADHD. Really fascinating show. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash distracted. Adam Ghazali, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so you wrote a book about... It's called the distracted mind. And it's, I think it's something that more and more people today are just becoming frustrated with themselves because they're constantly checking their phones. They feel like they're not present with their kids. They feel like they're not getting as much done at work because they're checking all those pings and whatever. How did you get into researching? You're a neuroscientist. How did you get into researching how our brain reacts to all this technology and why it distracts us? Sure. Well, I actually came in through an unusual route. So I've been studying the aging brain for almost 25 years now. And my research uh, over the last decade, uh, I guess starting around a decade ago, became focused on understanding how we change in terms of our thinking as we age, especially our attention, our ability to remember things and our perception of the world around us. And what I found in my research was that older adults who are experiencing these senior moments, which are essentially memory lapses, were doing so because they were more distractible. So in experiments that we performed in an fMRI environment, so in, a, in an MRI scanner recording functional brain activity, what we showed was that they were focusing as well as a 20-year-old on relevant information that we were presenting them. But the irrelevant information, which they knew was irrelevant, so we consider that a distraction, they were over-processing it. They were not filtering it. And the degree 
by which they took in that irrelevant information was associated with a decline in their memory for the information they were trying to remember. So essentially, they were having a filtering problem and they were having a distracted mind. What happened after that was that I quickly expanded our work to look at people of all ages and found that we're all distractible in many ways. And I would say that this research, which was the basic science of attention, was colliding with phenomena in the tech world. And I moved from the East Coast, where I did all of my medical training and scientific training in neuroscience, to Berkeley and and San Francisco. And so I'm sitting right here in the tech hub of the world and see the influence of technology and feel it in myself. And so those two worlds collided. My my research on attention and distraction, which eventually evolved into multitasking itself, and just my observations about technology and its impact on okay, us. Okay, this is really interesting. We'll get into that idea how older, as we get older, we, we have a harder time filtering. Just kind of counterintuitive. You think that by the time you're 50 or 60, you would, you wouldn't have like a racing mind and you'd have a little bit more focus, but we'll get, we'll talk about why that is in a, here in a bit, but let's talk about the, the, the science of distraction. You know, what goes on in our brain when we get distracted? You argue that distraction at its core is goal interference. How would you describe goal interference to a layman? Well, first, this is a concept of interference, which uh, occurs all the time. It's essentially noise that degrades the signal that we're trying to detect. You, you hear it in you know the old days when you had radio stations <laughs> that you would tune in and you would move until you hit the signal, and then you'd slide out, and you know there would be more noise. And that noise exists in in everything in, in nature and in physics. We also have this noise, this interference, when we come up with a goal. So we we formulate a goal. Uh, we set that, and that involves a whole set of abilities. And then we have to enact that goal. And anything that impedes that ability, we consider goal interference. So distractions are one type of interference. Another type we actually define differently, which would be multitasking. So just to break that down a bit, distraction in our laboratory, and our work, is irrelevant information that you know is irrelevant and that you are actively trying to ignore. So the classic example is you're having a conversation at a restaurant, it's loud, you're really trying to focus on your friend's voice and hear what they're saying, and you're trying to suppress all that chat around you. That is interference in your goal of focusing. The other type of interference, multitasking, is when you make the decision to engage in more than one task or goal at a time. So now you're at the restaurant, you're listening to your friend, but you're also trying to hear the waiter, you know, recount the the specials uh, that evening at the next table since you missed it the first time at your table. So now you have two goals and that's another form of interference, actually a more disruptive form of interference. But both of them degrade your ability to accomplish your And you goal. also talk about internal interference as, as well. Right. So I, I just gave two examples of external interference, the noise in the restaurant, which you could decide to attend to or decide to ignore. But all of this distraction and multitasking can occur without any stimuli from the outside world. It can occur within your own mind. So likewise, you know, as I just described for external, for internal, a distraction would be something that arises to your mind. Your goal is to ignore it. Let's say you just had a fight with your significant other earlier that morning. Now you're in a big meeting with your boss. You know you have to be giving your complete attention here, but your mind involuntarily returns. It's not filtering out that, that earlier event. 
multitasking internally is when you're having that conversation with your boss, but you're also thinking about what you're going to have for dinner that night. And so you make that as a choice. So it's really about the decision about how you interact with information in your environment or internal information. One of the big arguments of your book is that, I think the book is called uh, Ancient Brains in like modern world or something like that. But like, there's this disconnect. So we have this ability to set goals, which is, it's highly evolved, right? Um, not a lot of other animals can do that. Um, but we have these, what you call cognitive control abilities that aren't as evolved and causes us to be distracted from that goal we set from ourselves. So let's talk about what are these cognitive control abilities? And, and then later on, like, why aren't they as evolved as our goal setting abilities? Yeah, let me let me break that down a bit. I think that's sort of, you know, in my mind, one of the main theses of the book um, that sometimes gets missed. So I'm glad that we're going to dissect it. So just just your first point before I dive into cognitive control about goal setting abilities. I, I, I in my mind, that is the pinnacle of the human brain. Um, the, the peak of our evolution of our abilities is goal setting. And it's not that other animals aren't de are, are devoid of any goal setting, but the type of goal setting that we have, these long time delayed goals, you could set a goal for 10 years in the future and your goals could be interwoven with other goals and interwoven with other people's goals. That is unique. That That is a human ability that really, I, I would say, allowed us to create all the things that, you know, sort of define us. Uh, our civilization, our culture, our language, technology, art was really due to this ability to set goals of that level. But as you described, setting goals is one half of, of the puzzle, right? You also have to be able to enact your goals. And there's a set of abilities that, that I categorize in three separate groups, although they are overlapping. And I'll, I'll explain that more. That's actually a key point. And we call them cognitive control. So how you control your interactions with the environment based on your goals. How do you enact them? And there would be three different categories. Attention, working memory, what we define as goal management. And these are the skills that allow you to carry out those high-level goals to varying degrees of success. Gotcha. And then the um, – there was a, so, there's, so it's attention – Working memory, goal management. Okay, well, let's talk about attention. Um, I think people think they know what attention is, and I think usually the way they define it is I'm focused on just this one thing. I'm paying attention to this one thing. But as you mentioned earlier, an important part of intention is ignoring things that you don't want to pay attention. That actually t requires work. So what goes on in our brain when we're trying to pay attention while simultaneously trying to ignore not pertinent information? Yeah, you know, attention is is complicated being a cognitive neuroscientist as, as a term because it is used so commonly. And, you know, famous quotes from uh, psychologists have, have described that, you know, everyone essentially feels like they know what attention is because it's, you know, it's part of our vernacular and it's so critical to everything we do. But it's actually an immensely complex concept and, and very complex from a neural mechanism point of view as well. I would define it as our ability to direct our, our limited mental resources where we want them in space and in time. But this also involves, as, as we just discussed and you, you alluded to, not just focus, but another active process, which is suppression and the ignoring of irrelevant information. Since we have limited resources, we must 
direct them where where we want them. Sometimes they're directed by the environment. That's another discussion. We call that bottom-up attention, when the environment demands its focus from you because something is very salient or novel. But what we're talking about now is goal-directed attention. When you look at brain networks, and we've done this for many years with functional imaging, both EEG and MRI, you see that there are really two different networks involved in this process of focus and ignoring, and that they're both critical for performance. So that was, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not accurate to think that focusing is what we do and ignoring comes for free. It's not passive. It actually requires resources and a different network that we see in the brain. And when you fail to ignore, you suffer the consequences, which is interference. So that's that's a little bit about attention. You know, we also know that it's not just the direction of your focus and the ignoring of the irrelevant, but also the, the ability to sustain it over time, which is, I think, a, a real issue currently. So that's just a little bit of the complexities of, of that concept of attention. And so what hinders our ability to pay attention? I mean, you mentioned earlier that as we get older, we have a harder time ignoring things. Like what's going on there? Why, what's degrading or what changes in our brain or what? Yeah. So, so you know, one of, one of the things, uh, I, I just mentioned that there are two main, there's many ways of, of classifying attention. One way of, of splitting it in half is to say top-down and bottom-up attention. Top-down attention is what we were just talking about, goal-directed attention. You're putting your focus where you want it based on your goals. The other type of attention is bottom-up attention. It's when the environment demands it. So this was uh, critical for our survival. It's actually how attention developed in the first place. It's the more evolutionary, ancient form of attention. So seeking out food, avoiding predators, uh, seeking out mates, these were the things that allowed us to survive. And the environment drove these interactions largely reflexively. So something dangerous presents itself, you pay attention to it if you're an animal, and even, even a human, we still retain these bottom-up abilities. And then you instinctively flee and and that leads to your survival and you pass along those abilities bottom-up attention is is still a part of our lives and we would need it to survive if you're crossing a street and you're lost in top-down attention even internally thinking about your day you have to be responsive to a car horn letting you know that you're about to be you know crushed so we retain bottom-up attention and one of the roles that take one of the areas where technology has challenged us in my mind is the amount of bottom-up information that's very salient. So there are beeps, there are flashes, there are buzzes across all of our sensory stimulation, um, and they are there as notifications to push and to pull our attention. So I, I think that this is shifting the balance between top-down and bottom-up, how we're you know, being notified uh, by our devices when they have an information packet for us. So that's, that's one way that I think attention is shifting right now. Now, in the aging literature and what's happening with the older brain, it may not be because of that. And we actually, we have evidence that it's not only at least caused by changes in technology, but just changes in the brain as it ages, because we see a lot of the, at least we're starting to find that the things that we have shown in the laboratory in the older human brain, we see in older monkey brains as well. And as far as I know, they're not on social media a lot more and texting more. So I think that it's really also just about the aging process. And what occurs is that the neural network that's engaged when irrelevant information is presented is is not as robustly activated and that in that 
that stimuli around you that should be suppressed below what we consider, you know, just a flat baseline is getting through and it's being overprocessed and then it degrades the quality of the information that's relevant or your goals that it's are kind relevant. of depressing. Well, maybe we can talk about besides, <laughs> um, you know, researching how technology makes us more distracted. You also talk about your research on how technology can help us focus more. Maybe we can talk about there's some of the things we can do to counteract our aging brain and its ability to pay attention. Yeah, that was a great pivot. And that was like basically my life pivot, I would say. So what happened in my career is that what I just told you where you said that's kind of depressing. I was out in the world uh, giving lectures in the mid-2000s, maybe like, let's say, 2005, 2006, and especially speaking to the public, older adults, about the distracted mind and the change in attention and filtering and also the degradation that older adults experience even more so when they multitask. And I started realizing that that conversation while interesting for an academic audience who was very curious about how we, you know, solve that problem with fMRI and all of the details of neural networks to an audience of people that are actually experiencing that issue, it's a completely unsatisfying talk and, and depressing. And I didn't want to spend the rest of my life sort of reporting the bad news. So just like you pivoted into how we could positively use technology, that's exactly the stimulus that led me to ask my laboratory at UCSF and myself, can we use technology to accomplish the reverse? Instead of having it degrade our attention and our, and our cognitive control abilities, can we think about developing it in such a way that we can enhance those abilities? And so in 2008, um, I was really trying to uh, figure out where we were going to go with that concept that I just described to you. And I had the idea that we, you know, we had two pathways. One is the traditional approach that neurologists like myself tend to go for immediately, which is pharmaceuticals, or so small molecules. And we use drugs to do this all the time, or to try to do it. We do it for ADHD. We do it for Alzheimer's disease. There are pharmaceuticals out there that have some impact on attention abilities and cognition. And we actually tried a study with one of them. It's called Aricept that's used to treat Alzheimer's disease. And in in older adults, healthy older adults, to see if we could help them suppress better. And we had some modest effects and got a paper out of it, but it wasn't really what I was looking for. And so I struck upon this idea of instead of using molecules, to use an experience. Um, we know that experience drives our brain's plasticity. It's the, it's the very basis of all learning. It's a non-contentious point of amongst neuroscientists. It's why education exists in the format that we, we employ it right now. It's why therapy exists. But the problems with those other forms of experiential you know, interventions or treatments like education and therapy is that they're not always reproducibly delivered. So you have better therapists or teachers and worse. And so you can't have the same dosage all the time with the same potency like you would with a drug. So the idea was to use technology to deliver an experience in a way that's reproducible and targeted and you know consistent in that manner. And the way I came up with doing that was through the creation of a video game. And so in 2008, I reached out to friends of mine that worked at LucasArts, a particular friend, Matt Omernick, who was running a, a massive game team building the Star Wars game Force Unleashed. And I asked if they would help us build a game that, that I designed, that they helped develop, then develop, called NeuroRacer. 
A neuro racer is a multitasking game. So on the goal management part of that triad, the idea was to challenge older adults, healthy older adults in a closed loop system such that they are constantly being tasked to multitask at a higher and higher level. And the goal was not to make them better at texting and driving, but rather to see if we can engender an improvement in the other cognitive control abilities of attention and working memory, which we know are mechanistically related to multitasking. So they use common brain networks with the prefrontal cortex. And to make a long story short, three years later, um, after a, a big multiple research experiments, we found that that hypothesis um, was well-founded. And essentially, the older adults, which were 60 to 80-year-olds in our study, improved their ability to sustain their attention and their working memory, even in the setting of distraction and multitasking, although none of those things were directly part of the training game itself. And so that was the beginning of a long pathway for us. My lab became a center called Neuroscape. I started a company called The Killy, which is now taking that game to the next level and, and bringing it into FDA trials to see if it can be approved as a medical device to treat many different conditions. And you know, the, the flip side of the whole story that we started today was that, yes, we have a distracted mind. Yes, technology has created a challenge for us. It hasn't made this conflict between goal setting and goal enactment. That's always existed, but it's certainly aggravated it. But if we are well informed by neuroscience and by the burden of technology, then we can design new technology or, or even leverage existing ones to help improve our attention and help alleviate the distracted mind, at, at least to some degree. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right, so part of your overall health and well-being is getting a good night's sleep. And to get a good night's sleep, you need to sleep on a good mattress. But the way we do mattress shopping these days is kind of weird. You go to the mattress store, you lay on something for five or 10 minutes, and you decide right there, yeah, this is the thing I'm going to spend eight hours of my life on for the next eight years. Not so with Casper Mattress. First off, Casper Mattress has been essentially engineered and it's offered at a shockingly fair price. They have a supportive memory foam, creates an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right balance. In fact, we send one of these mattresses to our managing producer, Jeremy. This is what he said. It says him and his wife have never slept deeper or longer and less fitfully than with any other mattress they've had. He doesn't even notice her tossing and turning like he used to. So besides being a very comfortable mattress, nice thing about Casper is they'll send the mattress to you and you get 100 nights risk-free trial in your home. So you get to sleep on it for 100 nights, see if it actually works for you. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. They understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend about a third of your life on it. There's free shipping and returns to US and Canada. Now, if you want to try this out, got an offer for you. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash manliness and using offer code manliness. Again, $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash manliness and using offer code manliness. Terms and conditions apply. So one of the podcasts I listen to when I'm not doing my podcast is The Art of Charm, host Jordan Harbinger. And Jordan, you had an interesting guy that I think my listeners would love to know more about, Jack Barsky. He was actually a KGB spy in America. Tell us more about this guy. Yeah, this episode was incredible. This guy, Jack Barsky, he was a German guy, gets recruited by the KGB, goes to Moscow, does all this training to learn how to be more American by Americans that had defected back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. He goes to Canada. He's got to learn all these North Americanisms, and he's got to sneak into the United States 
and then pose as an American. So the KGB steals literally a dead baby's identity, comes into the United States, poses as an American, and he's doing all this like cryptography and sending stuff to the Soviet Union while working at this insurance company in New York. He loves being an American so much that he decides that spying is just a waste of time. And when the Soviet Union's like come home, he's like, nope. I'm not doing it. So he stays in the United States and there's all kinds of crazy details and stories along with this. He stays in the United States and now he is best friends with the FBI agent that hunted him. And the the details in the story are what make it, right? You can't, you think like, oh, you just told the story. I don't need it. We go through how he learned how to be more American. We learned the details of how the KGB recruited and trained him. It's just a one of a kind story that you have to hear it to believe it. All right. So you can find that at artofcharm.com. Also look for Art of Charm on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. And now back to the show. That gives me hope that I can have more focus when I'm in my 60s and 70s. But let's go back to people who are like my age, right? They're in their 20s or 30s. You mentioned earlier, yeah, the technology, the our digital technology exasperates this uh, distracted mind. And I thought it was interesting, this, this theory of uh, why that is, you borrowed it from the world of biology, which is the optimal foraging theory, ex which you used to explain like why digital tech in particular makes us so distracted. For those who aren't familiar with optimal foraging theory, can you explain that what it is and how you apply that to distraction? Sure. So what, what we've been talking about is why we are so sensitive to interference, which would happen if technology was there or not. And I think it's, it's obvious, but, you know, technology, because of its, you know, the access to information that it has offered us, challenges us. And people could, you know, just in their own experience, relate to that concept. The question is, even if you are aware of it, many people still feel the burden. It's not like, oh, oh, that's there. I'm going to just stop doing that. So one of the more interesting questions to me was why do we engage in this voracious consumption of information around us, sometimes to the disregard of our safety, if it's occurring while we're driving, or our relationships, if it's occurring while you're having dinner with your, your significant other, or at work or at school. And so you have all these real-world implications, and yet it goes on at such a you know intense level. Why is that? And so that's what I was really searching for. And there's a lot of what I think are largely hand-waving explanations of it's, you know, high reward, which it is, you know, the act of switching to novel information does carry a greater reward load than sustaining. But it felt like there's something more powerful and fundamental there. And so I was interested in, in an evolutionary explanation. And I came across a lot of literature on what's known as optimal foraging theory. And this is essentially a, a mathematical approach used by, by behavioral ecologists and evolutionary biologists to understand how animals and why and make predictions about their behavior forage for food in, in the world. And what I started to discover is that the primate brain, the human brain in particular, has sort of co-opted some of the ancient reward systems that other animals forage for food to drive us to forage for information. So that we're essentially uh, information-seeking creatures in much the way that other animals seek food for survival. And if that's true, then optimal foraging theory, which are these models that allow us to predict how animals and why they forage in a particular way might apply to us humans foraging for information using technology. One particular opt optimal foraging theory, the marginal value theorem, was particularly interesting to me 
because what it describes, and there's many different types of optimal foraging theory, some related to predator-prey relationships, but this one related to patchy environments was interesting because what a patchy environment is, is where there's a concentration of resources in one location and then sparse or impoverished areas of resources in between them. So, you know, a very obvious example is a squirrel in a tree foraging for nuts, right? So there's a certain amount of nuts in that tree. And then at some point, the animal becomes aware that there are no nuts would be the extreme or that there are less nuts. So there's a diminishing reward of remaining there. And then there is a new tree. Now, if that new tree is very close, then the animal might make that decision to jump over to the new tree quicker than if it's further away. And so there's this really interesting cost-benefit ratio and relationship of remaining in your source versus going to a new source. And I thought that was really analogous to how we interact with technology because it also exists. Information exists in patches. That patch might be your iPhone. That patch might be a website that you're working on um, and or you know even a document. The idea is that if you are foraging for information in a patch, you also have those two forces, the benefits of remaining there, but those are often diminishing, such as a text exchange, where at the end, it's just a bunch of emojis and it's lost all content. And then there is the cost of switching to a new information patch. And where technology has stressed us is those other information patches are just so accessible now, right? So at one point in history, not so long ago, you're reading a book. If you see something of interest, you have to go find a new book and look it up. And that's like a great cost to get there. So you might just remain in that source. But now it's just the click of a link and you could find out about it. And so the ability to switch is so easy that it drives this type of behavior. So that you know, that's a, a short explanation. It's multiple chapters in the book. But uh, I find it a satisfying one to look at why we consume information in the way we do, even if we're aware of its negative consequences. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, you're in San Francisco, you're in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. You're using technology to help people in- improve their cognitive abilities. Are technology companies and app developers, are they aware of how the brain works and taking advantage of it so that we actually use their stuff more? Well, I, I don't know that for sure. I mean, there are, there are strong statements about that um, and, and, you know, retorts that that's not the case. I don't have inside knowledge of that. I, my intuition would be that it's not driven by a deep understanding of the brain, but it's smart people making business decisions to, drive eyeballs on their products and that's the way it's always worked and people were getting better at it and technology has a lot of innate aspects of how it can be delivered that really uh, lends itself to challenging the distracted mind and largely because it's about information and information is really core to how we interact with the world and as I just described we're driven to it in a very sort of natural way, in an ancient way. Uh, so, you know, I would suspect that those decisions are not made based on this, but I do think that a growing awareness, and, and that is what I see in my interactions with many tech leaders in, in San Francisco, a growing awareness of this as an issue is, is dawning now. And what I hope is that this is a pivot point in the evolution of our technology 
where we recognize strengths and weaknesses of our brain and the opportunity and challenges of technology and we design in a way that is trying to help at the very least at the at the most enhance what makes us human at the least not degrade it not detract from it and i think that should be a part of every development plan of course profit is the bottom line i understand that um, I uh, started a business myself, but it doesn't mean that we should not at least have the conversation about the possible negative consequences of technology we create. Going back to this idea of, of, of the optimal foraging theory, you know, we talk about this and I've read this in other places. One of the things that makes digital technology particularly a a, you know, addictive, quote unquote, is that it's random, right? You can check sometimes and it's nothing, but sometimes you check and it's like, oh, I got this cool email. How does that fit into the optimal foraging theory? Well, you know, I, th I think that in a, in a fundamental way, it, it is what drives the, the reward cycle in the first place. Um, so it's like, you know, it's not the details that I was describing of why do you remain versus why you leave in my mind, but it is like the underlying engine. It is that reward system uh, constructed to drive our ancient ancestors to stay alive. You know, to be able to explore your environment versus exploiting where you are is, is this really very fine balance uh, that is, is fascinating from, you know, many different aspects of behavior and neuroscience and then when it comes to humans in, in real world and economics, and it impacts pretty much every field, you know, we, we, we know that novelty um, and that randomness, you know, is our sources of reward. So I would say that that sits underneath what we're talking about here, um, which is this understanding of why we stay or switch. But that's, those are the things that drive that process which could be staying or leaving from, you know, a very fundamental level. So do you have any advice based on your research for people who they, they feel like they're not in control of their technology, right? They're, they've become the tools of their tools. You know, who's that? Emerson or Thoreau said that? I don't remember. Yeah. I, you know, I would say that that's, that's sort of the basic point of the whole book in the end is what I simply say, take control. It's, it's, it's not about abandoning technology. It's not about it being good or bad or multitasking being good or bad. It's just about making informed decisions based on an understanding of your brain and understanding of technology and understanding of behavior that allows you to make better informed decisions so that you can take control over how you use tech and, and live healthier. That's, that's, you know, that's how I at least personally try to engage in the world. And, you know, I'm, I wouldn't claim to be a self-help guru. I'm a neuroscientist, but I want to live a good life myself. And so that's how I think about it is, is having control over how you use tech. I think in order to give advice, it's, it's helpful to talk about two other factors that influence the, the marginal value theorem, that, that optimal foraging model that we talked about. I, I described the cost of going to a new source is impacted by the new source of the new patch of information being so accessible right there all the time. And I think we feel that when we're driving in a car and it's boring and all of a sudden we reach for our phone because it's just right in your pocket. But the other source, which I just alluded to, is on the diminishing value of remaining in a source. And I'd say that this is probably unique to humans in some way, although I think that's still a research question. But there are two very critical factors that make that value of remaining in a single source diminish more rapidly than it would otherwise. One of them is boredom. 
evidence would suggest that we have uh, an increased rate of boredom when we remain in a source and probably a decreased tolerance to the sensation of boredom at all. The other factor is anxiety of remaining in a source. That anxiety could be FOMO, so fear of missing out, uh, which is very prevalent and, and, and a source of great anxiety, especially to young people. And then there's also performance anxiety, that by not doing something else, you're, you're letting an opportunity go by. And so boredom and anxiety accumulate uh, quite rapidly when we're sustaining our attention. And that makes the value of remaining in a source diminish that much more rapidly than it would otherwise. And so given that your value of remaining in the source is decreasing because you're uncomfortable, because you're bored or you're anxious, and the fact that another source is so close, bam, switch, 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 switch. You know, we know that almost everyone reports multitasking during the day, and it could be a third of the day, and in young people it could be seven devices at a time. And I would say it's these forces, the boredom and the anxiety, decreasing the value of remaining in a source, and the accessibility to new sources of information. And so if, you're, if I'm giving advice, and I, I like to work off of a model, not just to throw out good or bad ideas. And if you, if you take that model, and, and, and that's understandable, and, and it's validated, and it certainly needs work being further validated. But if so, then you know the levers that you can push on. The first would be on the accessibility side, decreased accessibility. When you're working on something that's really critical, that, that demands high quality, that has your name associated with it, not necessarily everything, but certainly those things, decrease accessibility. Quit your email program, close your door, use only one tab, you know, lots of ways of limiting that very easy access to other information. Um, on the other side, it's learning how to manage boredom and anxiety of doing one thing at a time. And the way I look at it is that that's not something that you could just develop in, in one instant because you made a decision. It actually takes training and practice. And so if you are going to sit down to do one thing, like write a paper that's really important, an article, I would say put an hour aside to do that and nothing else, but then take breaks. Not Don't try to do the entire hour. Most people will not be able to do that in my experience of interacting with many who I've given this advice to, but rather... Do it in five-minute intervals and take a break after five minutes. Um, and this will help with the boredom and anxiety. But the key thing is not to take a tech break, <laughs> not to go on social media or to open your email program because that just creates these sort of iterative loops and these sinkholes that pull you further away from accomplishing that goal of doing one thing in an hour. Rather, do some light exercise, close your eyes, do some mindfulness, meditation, expose yourself to nature if that's possible. And then, you know, set that for a short period of time and then get right back into it. And over time, you'll find that you could work for longer periods before having to take these types of breaks. So that's some of the advice or at least advice that I've given myself. That's awesome. You know, what's helped me too is realizing, coming to the realization that those other information patches that are out there, they're boring too. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. like, like Twitter, like I, I used to be big on Twitter, but then I realized like it's the same, like I'm going to see the exact same thing. Every time I get on there, it's not going to really change. Yeah. So I, I have no desire to, I have, no, I have like no desire to make the switch because I, I know that the information isn't all that useful or interesting. Yeah. And you know, that, that, that's the last piece that I didn't talk about, but I'm glad you alluded to it. We call it metacognition and it's really this, this awareness, um, awareness of how, of your limitations in, in your ability to focus your attention, your working memory, the, the, the cost that comes with switching, the degraded performance that you're almost 
uh, undoubtedly going to be achieving if you switch and come back. And then, of course, the awareness of what technology has to offer and that what's waiting over there is not so much better over here. And so, you know, awareness is critical, I think, to make a change because it's motivating, but it's not enough in itself. We know that for smoking cessation and dealing with sun exposure and even diet, you need to have a plan and a strategy to then enact it. But I do think it's it's an important part is is that awareness. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you've done this research, the video games with NeuroRacer to help older individuals. Have you done this for you know twenty or thirty something, we're doing that right now. So one of our one of our goals are to expand beyond aging and to move the tools that we create. We have multiple games at, at Neuroscape. We have six games. Some are meditation based. We have a game called Metatrain. We have a rhythm based game called Rhythmicity. A physical fitness meets cognitive fitness motion capture game called Body Brain Trainer. A game that's actually targeting towards teenagers to help with patience and sustained attention. Some of them are mobile games, some use virtual reality, some are motion capture. And we're interested in these being clinical tools, as we described, but also wellness for healthy adults and education tools for young people. One of my big sort of complaints about our education system is that so much has focused on the transferring of information content, but not building the underlying information processing systems that a young developing brain you know, needs and, and, and requires to perform at a high level. And so we are now looking across multiple populations, talking about the younger distracted mind, Achille has a game called Evo, which was what developed sec- sort of the next generation of Neurorace, or the game that we tested on older adults. That game is now in a phase three FDA trial to seek approval as a therapeutic device to help uh, pediatric ADHD. Uh, so essentially, the distracted mind in its <laughs> ultimate form, you know, young uh, people and children and uh, young adults that are you know, unable to really maintain sustained attention, which has led many of them to be placed on drugs like Adderall. Can we use this game, which challenges multitasking to help improve sustained attention and working memory, which we showed in older adults? And if we could show that, then it will uh, hopefully become the first non-drug treatment for ADHD and the first prescribable video game. So that's uh, hopefully stay tuned in 2018. That's great. So this, you would need a prescription to actually get this video game. That particular one. So we have many games I said at Neuroscape, but what Achilles has decided to do is to tackle this massive multi-billion dollar incumbent of the pharmaceutical industry where there's really one treatment right now uh, for uh, lots of conditions, ADHD being the one that, that we're focusing on most acutely. And the idea is to put something into the system that is really a direct challenge that can be prescribed by a physician with confidence, that can be reimbursed by insurance, treated as what we describe as a digital medicine as opposed to a molecular medicine. So yes, that that is the first pathway of that particular game. Interesting. Well, Adam, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? So I talked about two entities in this conversation. One my the research center at UCSF that I founded and direct, but we have many amazing uh, faculty members here and a big team. We have our own technology development program uh, that's called Neuroscape. So neuroscape.ucsf.edu. Uh, we just recently built a, a brand new website. There's a mailing list. There's just a, a ton of content on, the, on there that we're constantly updating. 
And then there's, of course, the company that spun out of our work called Achille. AchilleInteractive.com will also be another source of information more on the clinical side and what's happening with the first game that left the laboratory and we're trying to get out into the world. Fantastic. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, my pleasure as well. Thank you. My guest today was Adam Gazali. He's the author of the book, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at neuroscape.uscf.edu. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash distracted, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.